Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives in just a moment. want to let you know we're sponsored today by Blinds.com. Right now, for a limited time, Three Martini Lunch listeners can get $20 off at Blinds.com using the promo code MARTINI. All right, Jim, I don't know if it was exactly the kitty table last night. But it's pretty darn close. And one of the good things that happened here is the further exposing of the fact that Beto O'Rourke is a complete empty suit. He was up there uh, next to Elizabeth Warren. He was considered one of the top two or three up on the stage last night. Basically Warren, Booker, and, and Beto. And the early question was about taxes and raising taxes maybe to 70%. Would you be willing to do that for the highest income earners? And Beto O'Rourke spent a lot of time talking in multiple languages, mind you. Never got to the actual answer to the question. Let's uh, hear the first part of this. Congressman O'Rourke, what we've just been discussing and talking about is how much fundamental change to the economy is desirable and how much is actually doable. In that vein, some Democrats want a marginal individual tax rate of 70% on the very highest earners, those making more than $10 million a year. Would you support that? And if not, what would your top individual rate be? This economy has got to work for everyone. And right now, we know that it isn't. And it's going to take all of us coming together to make sure that it does. Necesitamos incluir cada persona en el éxito de esta economía. Yeah, and then went on and on in Spanish. And then this was back to English towards the end of his long-winded answer. And then more Savannah Guthrie. A new democracy that is revived because we returned power to the people. No PACs, no gerrymandering, automatic and same-day voter registration to bring in more voters, and a new Voting Rights Act to get rid of the barriers that are in place now. That's how we each have a voice in our democracy and make this economy work for everybody. That's time, sir. I'll give you 10 seconds to answer. If you want to answer the direct question, would you support a 70% individual marginal tax rate? Yes, no, or pass? I would support a, a tax rate and a tax code that is fair to everyone. Tax capital 70%. at the same rate that you, you tax ordinary income. Take that corporate tax rate up to 28%. You would generate okay. the revenues That's you time. need to pay for the programs we're talking about. That's time. Thank you. That's a lot of words there, Jim. Uh, Beto surprisingly not getting specific, but he's got this soaring rhetoric about uh, fundamental fairness and uh, economy that's got to work for everyone, but he's actually got no answers. Yeah. This was, I think, the exposure of Beto O'Rourke. This is probably the biggest audience nationally he's going to address. You know, some people may have caught some of his speeches and his coverage last year, but my suspicion is that this was probably the first sustained exposure people got to him. And it was pretty underwhelming. I think the speaking in Spanish when it was not, you know, asked in Spanish, kind of unprompted, is kind of gimmicky. His, you know, I guess the good news is he can, you know, avoid answer, avoid giving a straight answer in two languages. You know, in the end, eventually he gets to that 28%, which, you know, when you're asked the question, would you support, you know, uh, tax rates that high? You could say so, but he's got to put in, you know, this very generic, we need an economy that works for everyone. Well, what does that look like? And oh, by the way, we've got unemployment below 4% for the better part of a year now, right? So this is, you know, this is the lowest unemployment rate since 1969. We're pretty close to an economy that's working for everyone. It was kind of fascinating to see so many candidates went through and kind of talk about how terrible the economy was and how you know, they really made it sound dystopian. And unfortunately, when they got to Beto, he was usually the third or fourth person who was repeating some variation 
of these arguments. I think if the argument is that he's a lightweight, that he really loves to talk about generalities and platitudes, he did nothing to dispel that last night. The other intriguing thing was that he, I think, was the target for most of the night, certainly from Julian Castro, who came in ready to go after Beto, as well as de Blasio, one or two other points. And the interesting thing is, is, you know, Beto's not super duper high in the polls. He started out close to double digits, and now he slid to those, you know, He's at the bottom of the first tier or maybe the top of the second tier or something. But there's just not that many votes to get if you were to take out O'Rourke. I think Castro and de Blasio went after him because they just don't like him. (laughs) They really do think that he is a lightweight who is not prepared to be president and that he is one of, he is a target of opportunity because it was remarkable to see how much he got, you know, whacked around like a pinata when no criticism went to Elizabeth Warren. I don't think Joe Biden's name got mentioned at all. There was no criticism of Bernie Sanders. But man, nobody had any fear of taking on Beto, and everybody seemed to think, you know, everybody seemed to enjoy that part of last night's debate, including me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He had nothing. And uh, was it Castro who said, you didn't do your homework on immigration and that sort of thing? He did. And, you know, maybe this is all in the eye of the beholder. But I think it was before the debate, David Axelrod was talking about how Obama was, you know, Obama in those first couple debates in 2008, Axelrod thought Obama wasn't great. He didn't do that well. That these are big moments. You're on the big stage. The pressure is on you. And some people are terrific with this. And some people, it takes some time. I believe only Sanders and Biden had run for president before. And I think you can say that O'Rourke was among those who kind of started out a little bit nervous, started out a little bit halting. Clearly, he had wanted to go to Spanish in his first answer, whether it really kind of fit the situation or not. And it was kind of interesting to see a whole bunch of candidates who you and I kind of said, ah, they don't belong up on that stage, really didn't do a lot to disprove that accusation. We'll talk a little bit more about that in one of our later martinis. Absolutely right. Uh, We will get to much more of the debate in the third martini. In the meantime, pretty easy to see how the media and uh, a lot of Texas Democrats were blind to the reality of Beto O'Rourke back in, uh, well, just last year, 2018. They loved the idea of possibly knocking off Ted Cruz. They wanted to basically fluff up Beto O'Rourke, despite the fact that he really was a lightweight on policy and so many other things. But he's been to all 254 counties in Texas, so... That much we know. At least we think we do. But speaking of... He works hard. That's great. But in a debate stage, that doesn't count. (laughs) Maybe people like it when he jumps up on the diner counter. I mean, not the poor waitress who has to clean the diner counter. But, you know, he may be really good at retail politics. But it's very hard to win the nomination, particularly in a crowded field, if you wilt on a debate stage the way Beto O'Rourke did last night. Well, speaking of being blind, let's talk about the good kind of blinds, and that's at blinds.com. For many of us, the blinds, or whatever you have on your windows, is really an afterthought. But with brand new, made-to-order custom window coverings from blinds.com, you can really transform the look and feel of your entire home. I mean, the the metal basic blinds are okay, but they're certainly not going to be looking all that attractive. There's a lot more different options out there now, and blinds.com can help you with all of that. So when you need new blinds, there's only one place to go blinds.com with 15 million windows covered and over 30,000 five-star customer reviews blinds.com is america's number one online retailer for affordable quality custom window coverings whether you're looking for energy efficiency you just moved or you want to refresh the look of your home blinds.com makes the whole experience fast and easy plus every order gets free samples free shipping and a free online design consultation You just send them pictures of your house and they will send back custom recommendations from a professional for what will work with your color scheme, furniture, and specific rooms. 
They'll even send you free samples to make sure everything looks as good in person as it does online. Once again, every order gets free shipping. And this is the best part. Let's say you accidentally mismeasure or you pick the wrong color. If you make the mistake, Blinds.com will remake your blinds for free. They've really made it easy for you. So there's no more excuse for keeping up those mangled blinds. And for a limited time, three Martini Lunch listeners get $20 off at Blinds.com when you use the promo code Martini. That's Blinds.com promo code Martini for $20 off. That's faux wood blinds, cellular shades, roller shades, and more. Blinds.com promo code Martini. Rules and restrictions apply. All right, Jim, big day at the Supreme Court today as we shift to our bad martini. For the most part, Republicans pretty happy with the 5-4 to four ruling on redistricting, where the justices said it's none of the court's business. Uh, leave that up to the state legislatures and Congress if you want to change the rules on redistricting and gerrymandering. But the bad martini comes with respect to the census and citizenship. This is USA Today. The Supreme Court temporarily blocked the Trump administration's plan to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census Thursday, giving opponents new hope of defeating it. The ruling from Chief Justice John Roberts questioned the rationale for the administration's effort, just as challenging states and immigrant rights groups have done. Quote, the evidence tells a story that does not match the explanation that Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross gave for the, his decision, Roberts wrote, the sole stated reasons seem to have been contrived. In a complex decision with several dissents and concurrences, the court's four liberal justices said they would have struck down the citizenship question outright, while the court's other four conservative justices said it should have been upheld. The court's decision does not end the dispute, and a separate challenge to the administration's motive for asking the citizenship question remains alive in another federal district court. So basically this gets sent back to the Commerce Department and then the district court. And given the timetable for printing everything necessary for next year's census, this is probably the last chance to have gotten the citizenship question onto the census. And you're hearing a lot from folks today that this question hasn't been on the census since 1950. That's true, but it's misleading. The citizenship question appeared on every census form from 1820 through 1950. And from 1960 through 2000, it appeared on the long form, which was sent to about one-sixth of U.S. residences. So, Jim, you and I have talked about this before, the diminishing value and meaning of citizenship in this country. The Democrats certainly don't seem to be concerned about that at all. And trying to figure out how many people in this country are actually citizens seems like a pretty good idea, but apparently we can't do that anymore. Yeah, and this is deeply frustrating. And I'm going to make a—it may sound unrelated, but I do believe there's a tie between these two points. And— Stay with me as I go through it. You and I, Greg, are strong supporters of legal immigration. I think most conservatives are strong supporters of legal immigration. We might argue about how much is appropriate, but this is a country that welcomes for the last, I don't want to say, probably neighborhood of like maybe 15, 16 years. Uh, certainly since the beginning of the Bush administration, we have brought in about a million legal immigrants a year. I think that's a remarkable number. That's way more than almost any other country, than any other country in the world. Um, and I think that is exhibit A for the argument that America is somehow xenophobic or hates immigrants as a country is a, a nonsensical claim. We also strongly oppose illegal immigrants. Now, some of these folks may not necessarily be bad folks. Some of these people may be uh, Manuel the busboy at your local restaurant. Some people come to the United States on a legal visa and then they choose to overstay. Not all these people are bad, but they have all violated the law. And you and I and most other conservatives would argue you need to enforce the law. Having said that, in everything I've said, I don't think anything qualifies as xenophobic. I remember having an argument with Nick Schultz of Reason Magazine, back when Reason Magazine was more open about the fact that their viewpoint on immigration was literally open borders, that the only thing you should need to do to get into the United States is show up. 
And I think there's a reason you can say, I want to keep people who do not have permission to come into this country out of this country. I think people who do not have permission, who have overstayed a visa, must go home. I believe that if you want to enter this country legally, you have to do so. I don't think there's anything inherently xenophobic about that. And when somebody says immigrants aren't real Americans or those people, when there is indisputable exhibitions of xenophobia, people, this inclination that somehow they're not real Americans. I remember there was somebody arguing about Bobby Jindal, by the way, who was a U.S. citizen born in, the, in Louisiana. His parents are immigrants. And I remember having this argument and somebody said, yeah, the Republicans need to nominate somebody who's more American. Greg, that made my blood boil. Just because your name is different or just because the, the color of your skin is different does not make you less American. Now, has Trump said things like that? Eh, never quite that bad, but certainly, you know, the terms like the S-word whole company, countries and stuff like that certainly do give an inclination that he doesn't like certain people from certain countries. This is why you have to avoid the xenophobic rhetoric. This is why you need to denounce it. This is why you need to stand up for legal immigrants when somebody starts unfairly criticizing them. Look, you could argue the four liberal justices were always going to make whatever decision they were going to. They were always going to oppose whatever Trump wanted. Fine. Okay, fine. But Roberts couldn't go that far. Roberts did not see a legitimate argument from the administration. And there had not been these various memos, these various comments, these various things that fed the idea that this policy and this decision was driven by xenophobia. Maybe John Roberts would have made a different decision. I think John Roberts made the wrong decision here. Having said that, the administration made the job of getting him to yes much harder. When you are arguing before the Supreme Court, you tailor your arguments to persuade the justices that you think are gettable. We can argue about whether it should be this way, but this is how the system works. And it's really frustrating that some people in this administration don't want to do that. They do not care how they sound to other people, and they will vent their spleen without really considering the consequences of that. I think that venting of the spleen and these various other comments that suggest outright xenophobia are what cost them the Supreme Court case. And this is why you have to keep this stuff at arm's length at all times. No, it's very well said, because that's clearly what uh, John Roberts said in his decision there. I mean, it was pretty clear that uh, at least three of the justices were going to go with the administration on, on that, and Kavanaugh did as well. And so John Roberts was the fifth one, as he always is when you're going to have a contentious ruling. It's going to be five to four. It's just a question of which side he falls on, and they're pretty much out of time. So this is probably not going to be on the 2020 census, and that's too bad, because knowing who's here legally, knowing who's a citizen in this country, should actually matter a lot. All right, let's go back to the debates here as we head to our crazy martini here, Jim. And we're going to focus on on one dust up here, but uh, have comments on a lot of the other folks who are on the stage as well, because really that's the fun part. But Tim Ryan, congressman from Ohio, Youngstown area, blue-collar Democrat to be sure. Tulsi Gabbard, the Iraq war vet from Hawaii. She's got the endorsement of Ron Paul in this campaign, which lets you know that she doesn't want to be anywhere that we don't absolutely have to be right now, and she doesn't want to be in Afghanistan. So these two got in a dust-up, starting with Tim Ryan. And the lesson that I've learned over the years is that you have to stay engaged in these situations. Nobody likes it. It's long. It's tedious. But right now we have, so I would say we must be engaged in this. We must have our State Department engaged. We must have our military engaged to the, st- to the extent they need to be. Gabbard, not having it. Is that what you will tell the parents of those two soldiers who were just killed in Afghanistan? Well, we just have to be engaged. As a soldier, I will tell you, that answer is unacceptable. We have to bring our troops home from Afghanistan. We are in a place in Afghanistan where we have lost so many lives. 
We've spent so much money, money that's coming out of every one of our pockets, money that should be going into communities here at home, meeting the needs of the people here at home. We are no better off in Afghanistan today than we were when this war began. They weren't done. I don't want to be engaged. I wish we were spending all this money in places that I've represented that have been completely forgotten and we were rebuilding. But the reality of it is if the United States isn't engaged, the Taliban will grow and they will have bigger, bolder terrorist acts. We have got to have some present there. As, the as, the as Taliban was Iraq. there long before we came in. They'll yeah, be and they there were, long yeah, before exactly. we leave. Well, we cannot keep U.S. And troops they were deployed flying. to Afghanistan thinking that we're going to somehow squash this Taliban I that has say, been there that every other country that's them. tried I didn't say squash them. When we weren't in there, they started flying planes into our buildings. So I'm just saying right now, the we Taliban have The Taliban didn't obli- attack us on the, 9-11. The, Al-Qaeda the, did. Well, I understand. Al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11. I understand. That's why I and so many other people joined the military to go after Al-Qaeda, not the Taliban. Jim, what a room. That Tim Ryan line about planes into buildings would have brought the House down probably at a Republican uh, debate. And the fact that he actually got mildly booed for pointing out that the Taliban essentially created a safe haven for Al-Qaeda and Tulsi Gabbard blew right past it uh, shows you where the party is and uh, where I think a lot of Americans are right now, too. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is I think we can now say the idea of Tim Ryan as a presidential candidate is better than Tim Ryan as a presidential (laughs) candidate. The idea of this blue collar, rural to suburban, Rust Belt congressman speaking for all of the voters that drifted from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party when Trump was the nominee, all the forgotten communities, all the guys working in the mills. He's, you know, the concept of Tim Ryan is terrific. And then you saw him last night. And I think, personally, more than anyone else, he seemed to have the deer in the headlines look. Maybe it was bad makeup. Maybe you know, something. He did not look comfortable up on that stage, which is kind of surprising. Secondly, he's come out and he said, you know, it's surprising in the fact that he's been in Congress for 17 years. And when you're talking about errors he made, a big one was reminding people you've been in Congress for 17 years. <laughs> you know, this is not the right moment to say, look, I have been in Washington for a long time. But that exchange, I mean, the great irony is that I, I, my position is much closer to Tim Ryan's. But I think Tulsi Gabbard just mopped the floor with him. And you know, look, it is a tough line when you get hit. As a soldier, I tell you that answer is unacceptable. I mean, that's just a kick to the crotch. The problem is Ryan didn't really do himself any favors when he says, I don't want to be engaged, but you're arguing for engagement. <laughs> you know, it's like, like if you if you think the policy is necessary and is going to work, you got to do that. And then, of course, he makes the emphasis. I didn't say squash the Taliban. Well, look, if you're going to fight the Taliban, you might as well squash them, right? You might as well finish them. Either this is a fight worth having or it isn't. And Gabbard, you know, as much as I think she's wrong is very clear in her perspective. This is not a fight worth having, that there's nothing that's going to happen. We are now, we're approaching the 18-year anniversary. We will soon probably have people fighting in Afghanistan who were not born at the time of the 9-11 attacks. So that's a tough argument that those who want to support engagement need to address. And I think you kind of alluded to it there, Greg. When she says they were there long before we were there, I assume what she started to say afterwards was that they will be there after we leave. The counter-argument to Tulsi Gabbard is, look, if we leave, this takes us back to September 10th, 2001. Yes, the Taliban did not attack us. All they did was set, you know, host and help and arrange the guys who did. So, right? so we're, you know, by the way, we gave them the option in September 2001. You guys give up al-Qaeda, we're not going to invade. You just turn over bin Laden and all of his lieutenants, and we are not going to go to war. And the Taliban turned that down. And when they made that decision, they made their choice, and they've been living with the consequences ever since 
That's the argument you make, right? The argument you make is like, look, if the Taliban retakes Afghanistan, how much faith does Tulsi Gabbard have that if the Taliban retakes control of Afghanistan, they're not going to start hosting Al-Qaeda or ISIS, which, by the way, is operating in Afghanistan, or the Khorasan group or the Haqqani network or any one of these other terror groups that are dedicated to killing Westerners. But you make the argument like, look, the Taliban didn't attack us. Well, no, okay, they just ran the bed and breakfast for the guys who did, right? I mean, the question is, how safe do you feel if the Taliban comes back to control? And oh, by the way, how do you think every other U.S. ally was going to react when all of a sudden we put all this blood and treasure into this place and we say, ah, it's too hard, forget it. We leave and the bad guys are running the show again within you know, six months to a year. It would be the last helicopter out of Saigon again. You would see all of these Afghans who have helped us, translators, people who have run their gun. We, we, we effectively, whether we like it or not, we made a promise and there are a good chunk of the country who want to say keeping that promise is too hard. Well, you know, here's the thing. Even if you're comfortable with writing off Afghanistan, even if you're comfortable with girls getting acid in their face and the closing down the schools and everything that comes back when the Taliban comes back, even if you're comfortable with all that, at some point this will come back to bite us as the Islamist movement gains strength, gains movement. The ISIS has been smashed. We're finally making some good progress. And some people want to go right back and say, hey, you know what, Taliban, go back in charge. We're not, we have no problem here. It also points out, and you did it very well, the importance of not only being right, but being able to explain, well, you're right, because Ryan has the better position, but he couldn't make the argument. And Gabbard had a worse position, but made the the more compelling argument, at least in that room, which leads us to uh, the larger distillation of what happened last night in Miami. I kind of thought of Delaney as the guy who the only words he heard were, thank you, thank you, we'll get back to you. He kept trying to interject all the time. Jay Inslee was smiling even when other people were talking. I'm not really sure why. Bill de Blasio also butting in, but seemed a little more, bit more belligerent about it. He actually looked at the camera, which seemed to impress some people. I guess they're easy to impress. In the end, nobody really mentioned Trump that much. Nobody mentioned Biden and Sanders that much. And nobody went after Warren. Like you said, they went after Beto instead. No damage up top in this race, it would seem. That's a good summary to go through there. Look, you know, John Delaney, the first time we really heard from him, he raised the discussion of health care. He raised the point and he said, why are we as Democrats threatening to take away health insurance from people who are happy with the insurance they have? And look, you and I have been making fun of him. My standard line has been John Delaney, who actually exists because he's this pretty darn obscure <laughs> Maryland congressman. And he said that and I kind of sat up like, oh, wait a second. Maybe I've been underestimating this guy. Maybe he's going to, you know, he talked about his experience as a businessman. And maybe this was the guy who was going to be reasonably pro-free market and reasonably incrementalist, I guess you could say, would be his perspective on changing the healthcare system. You know, he, he was going to be the voice of common sense. And I, I, Greg, I, don't know, I think it's just tragic that he was abducted by aliens after about 20 minutes because <laughs> I just didn't see him. <laughs> or I exaggerate slightly. Every once in a while, he would, ju- he would jump in and they'd say, oh, Congressman Delaney, we'll get back to you after the break. And they never went back to him. <laughs> um, I think the moderation was pretty darn bad um they're not even getting to the audio technical difficulties they had there uh like four questions went to warren in the first 23 minutes i checked first of all they said this wasn't a kiddie table debate but the only big name is warren and almost all the questions went to warren early on and the great irony is i thought that you know a bunch of the guys who i had not expected much out of like cory booker and julian castro actually had pretty good nights i think they actually kind of stood out they finally had their there are moments that were there, which is pretty good. De Blasio was indeed the angry, obnoxious guy at the bar who you don't want to mess with. But you know what? He was interested in having conflict and drawing contrast with other people on stage, which was an important thing you have to do in this. I know everybody wants to have a love fest. And, oh, why do we have to disagree? Look, voters only get one choice. So you need to make the argument, I am the best. 
And that inherently means I am the best because the other people are not as good as me. And here's why. This is a necessary part. I'm tired of people whining about negativism and, oh, you know. And finally, one last closing thought there, Greg. As soon as I saw Jay Inslee, I was like, oh, I like that guy. I, I have a good, reassuring feeling when I see this guy. What's going on? And I was thinking, you know, it's because he ran uh, CTU all those years. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, wait, I'm thinking of Bill Buchanan. So, yeah. So. Yeah, Bill Buchanan was an excellent director of CTU, went through some major crises with great competence uh, at the Los Angeles branch. Then he went rogue and things didn't go so well for him. But, uh, Jim, we'll see what happens with the uh, more prominent candidates tonight. Uh, You're right that I think Castro and Booker uh, helped themselves, at least in terms of fundraising and name ID. In the end, I was uh, giving the analogy today because I refused to let go of the NCAA tournament motif here, and that's that this is probably the equivalent of a small conference tournament and in the conference championship game, the winning team looked really, really good. And congratulations, you get North Carolina in the first round. So I'm sure you'll do just as well. <laughs> uh, somebody had put it very well. Watching Ryan and Gabbard was like a really good 8-9 game uh, <laughs> in the NCAA tournament. You're like, wow, this is fun and exciting. Man, they're really going at it. And you know it has no real outcome on the final result. <laughs> Exactly right. Exactly right. We're going to get this March Madness bracket going at some point. Maybe not this cycle, but sometime soon. Jim, uh, great to be with you as always. Talk to you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Don't forget, Blinds.com for a limited time. Three Martini Lunch listeners can get $20 off at Blinds.com using the promo code MARTINI. Rules and restrictions do apply. And tune in again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.